Mask Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Welcome to the Lawfather podcast. Once again, we're still here in Lawfather headquarters. I should be coming out of here fairly quickly as the state of Florida is starting to open up again. Uh, I would ask you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. If you want to reach out and talk to me, always willing to talk to anybody, 855-LAWFATHER, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. And that email address is specially dedicated uh, just to this show. And if you have any legal questions, that's where you can send them. In our next podcast, next week, we will be doing legal questions. Uh, This week is case or no case. Uh, We have a guest on uh, in a little bit, Keith Todd. So lawfather at tampalawfather.com is how you ask your legal questions. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just look up the Lawfather. It's a couple of different ways on those different platforms. If you just search Lawfather, you're going to find it. We try to keep some entertaining videos up there and uh, some good information. And uh, also you'll see some stuff uh, where we are now the attorney for the Ron and Ian show. And we're doing some work with them. And uh, you'll be able to hear that here fairly uh, soon on uh, WDAE. So check that out. As always, check out Bravo Delta Legal Services, all you PI attorneys out there, anybody who needs medical records, bravodeltalegal.com, 813-591-4259. And as we've been doing in this coronavirus time, I want to start off with some coronavirus stories and um, some litigation involving the coronavirus and kind of moving out from what we hear in mainstream media that uh, you know, all the different political aspects and everything else that is involved with the coronavirus. Uh, everybody listening here, I think, is getting getting bombarded with that. So I like to look at it from the legal aspect. And there is some new litigation, uh, shockingly, I suppose, uh, when we're in a time where uh, people's civil rights are being taken, for lack of a better uh, term. Uh, and and by no means am I trying to make this uh, a political statement, uh, really just looking at it from the legal perspective. And I do think that there are really some interesting legal questions that come up. Uh, so the structure is this. The United States has a constitution, which I would imagine most people are familiar with, and that constitution has amendments, and each state has their own constitution. And both of those documents work together to say essentially what our rights as citizens are, okay? And so when we look at something like this, uh, some of those uh, are are deemed unalienable rights. Um, Our freedom is essentially an unalienable right. Um, And and I am solely talking from a constitutional law standpoint. yeah, whether or not we should or should not have shut down is is probably a question for uh, another podcast, a, a more political podcast. Um, does the Constitution allow for some of those things? It does. And is there an ability to overstep the bounds of that? There is. And you know, who do who gets relied on to determine or help determine where that line is? It's the attorneys the judges, uh, and the legal system. So that's where we are now. And there's really an interesting one that's popped up, an interesting piece of litigation that's popped up. And it's 
somewhat uh, Tampa Bay centric, although it does have implications across the state. And as most of us in Florida know, we are currently in what they've called uh, phase one of reopening of a safe, smart, step-by-step plan for Florida's recovery. And that's what it's been titled under the governor's uh, current executive order, which we are operating under. Now, an interesting piece in this executive order is the short-term rental, uh, vacation rentals, if you will, rentals that are less than 30 days. Those are not allowed to operate. Short-term vacation rentals are not allowed to operate. But what is excluded from that are hotels, resorts, motels, inns. It's kind of an interesting question. When you look at a hotel and you look at a short-term rental, and if I didn't mention it, short-term rentals are less than 30 days in duration. So typically, a hotel stay is less than 30 days in duration. Honestly, I would tend to think that hotel stays on average are less than a stay in a vacation rental. Uh, My family spends uh, a week each summer in Anna Maria Island, and most, if not all of those vacation rentals have a minimum of seven days. So if you're looking at having a minimum of a seven-day rental, just by mere fact of you have 52 weeks in a year, seven days being a week, you have 52 families in and out of those vacation rentals. Whereas a hotel, they may have a bunch of overnight stays, a bunch of two-night stays, three-night stays. But I don't think you see a lot of seven-night stays. So there is a a stark difference between the two. And the lawsuit is being brought on behalf of vacation rental owners. Uh, It'll probably get class action status if it hasn't already. And uh, we're going to talk about class actions a little bit later on uh, when we're talking about universities and some of those lawsuits as we talk to Keith Todd from the University of Tampa. But essentially, a class action lawsuit is a lawsuit that has the same facts and circumstances, and there's several plaintiffs. And so rather than having several plaintiffs bring separate lawsuits, they all get rolled into one lawsuit, and that's what that's what a class action lawsuit is. Now, what's being looked at is whether or not the governor violated the U.S. Constitution's contract clause and the Florida Constitution by specifically prohibiting Uh, short-term rental properties. Uh, So, for example, there's uh, Anna Maria Vacations, which is in Anna Maria Island, and they rent out several houses a year, and um, they have uh, more than 250 properties that they rent out. Well, they're all effectively shut down, whereas a hotel is allowed to operate. So, you know, I, I think when you're looking at something like this from the legal perspective, sometimes we look at what's the equity, right? What's equitable and and what's fair, and in something like this, it, I can't wrap my head around why it's different. Uh, I could see if you wanted to prohibit short-term vacation rentals that were done through private listings, uh, for example, maybe Airbnb, because there's no oversight over how those places are cleaned. But when you're talking about prohibiting places like Anna Maria Vacations and all the other uh, companies that are in Anna Maria and all the various vacation areas in Tampa, They have cleaning staffs in place. Those places are professionally cleaned anyway. So there's some oversight that that comes into play there. So not really sure why uh, 
why the governor made the decision to close those but keep hotels open. I mean, uh, this lawsuit makes some allegations that, hey, hotels have big lobbyists and there were hotels on or hotel representatives on the reopening plan, uh, whereas there were no short term vacation rental people on that plan in terms of the the how to draw that plan up and put it together. So um, really interesting from the legal legal point of view. Uh, one of the issues that comes up is due process of law, which is a constitutional right. And due process means that you essentially had the opportunity to be heard and they have not really had an opportunity to be heard. And it's just it's definitely a legal issue that needs to be looked at. Uh, we're going to see, I think, some very interesting case law come out of this coronavirus. And what we're looking at here is the fourth, fifth and 14th amendments of the Constitution. So, um, you know, there's equal protection under the law. There's due process of the law. Definitely very interesting right in our backyard. And, you know, can't wait to see what happens with this one. And, you know, as we've done with some of the other coronavirus uh, litigation, going to keep an eye on this one and see where that takes us. So as we move through here, we have a special guest on the show today, Keith Todd from the University of Tampa. So I would like to welcome to the Law Father podcast, a good friend of mine from the University of Tampa, Keith Todd. Keith, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks, Billy. Good to be here. Uh, excellent, excellent. Great to hear that. Now, what is your actual official title other than um, funny guy at UT? Uh, yes, I am the vice president for development and university relations. So um, it, basically, I'm in charge of, you know, alumni outreach is one area, fundraising, uh, supporting scholarships and buildings and the like uh, is the other big area. And then public information are what a lot of people refer to as marketing communications uh, is also comes up through our area. Excellent. And, and from from that, I would assume that you're pretty plugged into what's going on at the university at this time with all the coronavirus and pandemic issues that have arisen for not just University of Tampa, but all universities in the country, correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, I get I get the pleasure of being on uh, essentially daily uh, calls, uh, mostly now moved to Zoom calls, of course, uh, is, is uh, 95% of the campus is uh, remote uh, working. But yes, we are, we are meeting daily, regularly uh, on this topic. Okay. All right. And, you know, I'd like to get more into the state of the university and maybe how uh, people listening can help out. But before we get there, I, I covered in a previous co- podcast that there's some ongoing litigation with several universities. I know University of Miami uh, here in Florida has uh, one that's pending. There's one in Drexel, and uh, I believe there's a few others, and they may actually even have class action status. So, you know, as a as a legal podcast, I always like to try to bring us into the legal realm of things. So sure. uh, if you can a little bit, Keith, can you talk about a little bit about what you guys are seeing on your side of these lawsuits and um, kind of the, the merits behind them or kind of just in general how it affects University of Tampa? Sure, sure. So first, let me just uh, point out that uh, thus far, uh, we have had no uh, action against the University of Tampa. 
Um, we are following it very closely and paying a lot of attention to it. We, like uh, some of the universities you mentioned, uh, University of Miami and Drexel in particular, as private universities, part of their brand and part of their uh, platform is residential-based education, of course. And so when the pandemic pushed us to remote, uh, a couple of the institutions, as you mentioned, have had lawsuits brought against them. The one in Drexel in particular uh, is interesting in that they do have a tiered tuition model, one for residence-based education and one for remote education. And uh, of course, we don't have that at Tampa. But that seems to be that individual or potential other student um, concern is that they paid for a residential-based uh, tuition and now we're we're regulated to a a remote environment. They want, if you will, they want their money back for what they paid for that wasn't able to be delivered. Um, again, we haven't had any issues at, with the students at UT. Um, we actually related to that uh, to that pandemic. Uh, we did return $11 million to students who had paid for a semester of housing and food plan uh, because obviously they weren't in housing or using the food. So we paid, uh, we did make reimbursements of $11 million. So that may have also been, it was the right thing to do, of course, but it also may have, I called, softened the blow a little bit of having to go to a remote education model. Yeah, and $11 million is is definitely a lot of money. Now, I'm assuming, though, that UT didn't actually save $11 million, that they, they paid back $11 million, but I would imagine there were other costs that had already been spent that, in turn, puts UT in the hole based on that? Well, um, you would think, uh, well, let me just say, no, it didn't put us in the red, actually, uh, because we are pretty conservative on our budgeting. Uh, we are going to, end, you know, our fiscal year ends, a lot of places ends June 30th. Ours ends May 31st. And we are, we are projecting to finish in the black even after returning $11 million. So that, that just goes to the good fiscal, uh, responsibility that President Vaughn and and Kevin Lafferty and our senior team have around budgeting. Uh, but no, we did not, uh, it wasn't so much that we didn't make, have expenses. Of course we had expenses. We just had to do the right thing by our students. Uh, which meant we, you know, like a lot of places, we had to just cut back and, and, you know, a little bit of our cash reserves has now been, uh, uh, used up in a, in a, in a, an appropriate way, but used up. And that all makes sense. Um, you know, to kind of touch on the lawsuit again, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but from what I understand sure. from those lawsuits, I, you know, I don't think those universities had refunded the, the money, at least at the time when I initially talked about those lawsuits. I mean, do you think it's right and proper for someone to file suit against a university if they didn't return some of that money for uh, housing and things that would have been you would have needed to be on campus for so uh, I guess that you know that does fall a little bit into the 
philosophical position. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll give you my position on it, and I assume that's what you're asking anyway. Is uh, yeah, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the university. Just you know what what you right, as right. individual opinion has. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, when when there's a and, and I'll call this broadly a, an act of God, right? Uh, this pandemic is something that no one planned for and no one anticipated, and so colleges and universities resorted to keeping people safe. And as part of that, they wanted to maintain some educational integrity. But at the same time, you can't have, uh, especially at the peak of it, people um, congregating together in dense areas. So I think it was the right thing that the colleges and universities, including UT and Miami and others, did was to uh, move to a, a remote platform and and you still delivered the educational uh, uh, material and learning still continued. Uh, it is not our preferred mode. We are not set up to be a remote learning institution. Uh, and our intention is, of course, to, to return to a residence-based education platform in the fall. And so I, I find it I find it, uh, I don't want to get all legally on you or, uh, but yeah, we do have a litigious society. Uh, and, you know, sometimes 18 year olds and their parents, uh, you know, can, can push, kind of, can push on something that is not of our control. Um, so I think it's, uh, I don't agree with it personally. Uh, now, on the on the housing and the food plans, uh, I I I don't know what Miami or Drexel or any of the other institutions did do, but like I said, at University of Tampa, we recognized that they weren't actually being able to use that service, so we did reimburse. Um, and I do think that was the right thing to do as well. But I, I'm not aware of what Miami or Drexel or any other university's position has been on that. Yeah, and just uh, a number that I had read recently, this is about $760 per person. And you know, I, I think what it comes down to is you have an attorney who sees, hey, I can start a class action lawsuit. And for those that don't know what a class action lawsuit is, it's just several plaintiffs that come together as essentially one individual case and you take $760 per and you multiply that over a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 students, whatever, you know, that number comes out to be. And, and that's where the big impact is. Um, so, yeah, you know, in yeah, terms I, of I, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to just add, I think, I think the community has read maybe just one too many John Grisham novels. <laughs> yeah, no? uh, I agree. <laughs> so, uh, long-term economic impact for the University of Tampa. Is there any expected long-term impacts? Um, actually, so right now um, we are planning for, as I said, a, a residential-based return. Uh, most likely will be a delayed start, but a, a start uh, to uh, on-campus education delivery this fall. And, um, of course, 
you know, there's all kinds of variables that will go in how that will affect us budgetarily because if, let's just say, 85% of the returning students have already registered for classes, that's a good sign. But uh, unlike a lot of colleges and universities where the average distance a student travels to go to college is around somewhere around 200 miles. For University of Tampa, uh, it's actually in excess of several hundred miles. As you know, may know, uh, remember, Billy, we, we do recruit heavily in the Northeast. Uh, about 50% of our students do come from outside of the state of Florida. The other 50%, of course, from Florida. And we, we can't predict uh, exactly what's going to happen. Uh, let's say uh, Johnny in New Jersey is anxious to come back and wants to get back to Tampa and be with his friends and, you know, get back in the classroom. Absolutely, we, we know that just anecdotally from all the responses we are getting. But who's to say that, you know, mom and dad aren't going to say, well, wait a minute, maybe you ought to just stick around, you know, New Jersey for a semester or a year and, and let's just, you know, watch this thing, right? So we don't know exactly what kind of impact ultimately uh, that could have on us because obviously if we don't have essentially if most of those kids don't come back or if they take a year off or you know uh, or do a gap year or just take courses at a local community college to ease their health concern um, that could have an impact because of course uh, tuition primarily of course helps pay the the, the faculty and staff salaries, you know, the, the people who deliver the services to the students, uh, as well as the educational uh, platform to the students. So uh, thus far, we've had no furloughs or layoffs or anything like that uh, based on good, sound fiscal responsibility. But if we take a hit on, uh, if you will, a decrease, a, a dramatic decrease in the amount of students who return uh, as well as the first-year students who uh, haven't even had a bond made to the University of Tampa, that could, in fact, uh, really have an impact on our budget for the coming year. So we're still we're not we're not I call it we're not out of the woods uh, simply because we we can't predict what's going to be the the American psyche with going away to college and what that's going to mean. And then you couple that with uh, the high rate of, of unemployment currently due to this pandemic. And are some people, again, going to take a gap year uh, so that their families can get more uh, financially sound uh, in the sense of returning to work and that kind of thing? Yeah, that all makes sense. So it sounds like the university is uh, pretty kind of cautiously optimistic, if you will. Yeah. Oh, we're very optimistic uh, that we'll we'll be able to do this, but we're we're also uh, we're not Pollyannish enough to just say we're going to flip the switch, right? You know, we we got to continue to uh, make the campus safe, and some of that is just real, like having sanitation and mask and that kind of thing. And then and and I will be honest, some of it's optics, right? You know, does it feel safe? 
Um, and that's the part, I mean, we can, we can do the first part. We can make the campus safe, but we can't, uh, we can't necessarily invade people's psyche. Uh, uh, we, we don't know how the country is going to continue to react to this pandemic. I know you and I, Keith, were talking the other day uh, about uh, giving to the university and the UT Give Day, which is the annual uh, make a donation basically to the University of Tampa Day. And uh, that was pushed back as a result of uh, things being closed down. But that's going to be coming up soon, correct? Correct. So we had originally scheduled and been organizing ourselves around our annual Give Day um, for April 21st, and we, we of course, right in the height of the of the pandemic, we we didn't cancel it. We set it aside and said we're going to pause on this and and see how things uh, come together. We've now reset that for May 27th, and so we will be doing uh, a version of our Give Day. But uh, our Give Day has traditionally been a high energy on campus, a lot of students, faculty, and staff. Uh, gathering, so obviously we won't be doing that part, but we will be doing it uh, again uh, in a, more on a social platform and with social ambassadors and advocating and pushing on on their Facebook pages, on their LinkedIn pages, on their web page. Uh, so we're hopeful that, of course, uh, that those who can uh, will support the University of Tampa and you know, predominant amount of dollars raised through our annual uh, Give Day uh, program goes to student scholarships. So that's, for us, that's kind of a perfect, uh, uh, like a perfect space because in a sense, uh, we think we're going to have even more financial need going into this year than we've had in, 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 in recent history. So we think this will be a, a good thing again for people who can support uh, students forward, paying it forward, so to speak. Uh, that's that's our goal for this year. And how can people give to that? Yeah, so you know, you'll be able to again. There'll be a lot of social pushing out as opposed to you know, physical on campus celebration. Uh, so you can go to the webpage, uh, www.ut.edu, uh, give day, and you can make your, uh, gift online, uh, safe and secure, uh, just like you were buying from Nordstrom's or a pizza for that matter. So. <laughs> uh, that's excellent. So, and I think, uh, as, as give day gets a little bit closer, I'm going to, uh, get with you and, sneak on the campus and maybe do a couple things. Maybe we, we do some social media videos, you and I, and uh, we'll try to avoid President Vaughn. Uh, hopefully he's not <laughs> listening to this and hearing that I'm going to sneak onto his campus. But um, all kidding aside, uh, let's get together and do something on that. Oh, that'd be awesome, Billy. I appreciate that very much. And I know that students who will benefit will appreciate it greatly. So thank you. All right, Lola. Let's do something fun. And uh, in the spirit of doing something fun, Keith, we have a little game that I like to play when we have guests on. And it's called Case or No Case. And I took it from when I was doing some TV work. And here's what it is. I'm going to give you three case scenarios. Okay. And you have to decide which one of those three scenarios is a real case. 
Okay. Okay. And I made this one super tough for you today. All right. So uh, we'll see uh, see what you know about the legal side of things. <laughs> All right. Number one is the case of Jack and Diane. Jack and Diane are married. They go out to a bar and Jack drinks a Jack and Coke. They leave and Jack drives them to their house. On the way home, Jack fails to stop for a stop sign and rear ends the car in front of him. Diane, who is his wife, is hurt. She sues Jack. Does Diane have a case? That's case number one. Case number two is the case of the martinis. Tony goes to a bar and has two martinis over a two-hour period. Tony is driving to see a friend when he is rear-ended at a red light by Sal. Tony is hurt in the crash. Tony sues Sal. Does Tony have a case? And lastly, number three, the case of the shots. Paulie walks into a bar. Paulie downs several shots of vodka and then leaves the bar to walk home. Paulie was drunk, and Paulie walks into a crosswalk. And as he's in that crosswalk, Silvio crosses it, crashes into Paulie. Paulie is hurt. Now, Paulie is found to be 60% at fault for this crash. Paulie sues Silvio. Does Paulie have a case? So, is it the case of Jack and Diane, the case of the Martinis, or the case of the shots? It's the second one. You are correct. It is the second one. So, that said, do you know why one or three wasn't correct? Well, a wife can't sue her husband, number one. That is true. Yep. Number, number three... Uh, the regardless of the alcohol uh, in his system, I guess his name was Jack, right? Uh, Jack was in a crosswalk, and a pedestrian has the right of way on crosswalk, whether they're drunk or not. Well, so it, it was Paulie, and, and Paulie was the one that was drunk, and, and it comes down to kind of a unique Florida piece. So. Uh, uh, Florida has what's called comparative negligence, meaning you can be 99% at fault for your injuries and still collect and still have a case unless you're drunk. Oh, okay. And if you're drunk and you're more than 50% at fault, you lose. You have no case. So no ah. case there for that reason. Yeah, we had we had Paulie and Silvio there. And uh, I think those of you who may watch uh, binge watch some TV during the quarantine, uh, certain HBO show, may know Paulie and Silvio very well. Um, and then we have Jack and Diane from uh, old song fame. Right. And, yep. you know, there are some instances where that spousal immunity doesn't apply. But for the most part, you're right. It is spousal immunity that it's a public policy issue that there would be family issues and fraud and collusion against insurance. So that's why number two is a case. So Keith, that was a tough one today. Um, you too could go to law school and be a lawyer, it turns out. Well, actually, uh, I guess I should make the full confession here. I did actually take a couple of law classes in uh, graduate school. Uh, so a few things kind of popped in my head when you were describing. But probably more so is, uh, uh, I, think, I don't know if you know this, Billy, but uh, my, my daughter is an attorney in D.C. So oh, wow, that's uh, awesome. I, I hear things from time to time, you know, and she'll mention something. And she doesn't talk too much about, you know, business business. But uh, every once in a while, I get a little nugget here and there. So, so I, yeah, I that's very cool. Slight, slight advantage. So. 
All good, man. Hey, it was very good talking to you. Uh, University of Tampa Give Day coming up. So definitely go check that out. Do I get a t-shirt? Do I get a... I have a special law father t-shirt. And do I get a t-shirt for getting the answer right? You do. You do. When when we do our videos for Give Day, we'll have a t-shirt. We'll we'll be wearing matching shirts. How about that? Sounds awesome. (laughs) All right, buddy. Good talking to you. It's great talking to you. All right. There's a great talk today with Keith Todd from the University of Tampa. Make sure you check out University of Tampa's Give Day. Uh, check them out at ut.edu. Uh, and I know that uh, Keith Todd and myself and uh, a couple other um, individuals to be named later are working on a plan for some social media videos for it. So make sure you check out the Law Father social media at Facebook at The Law Father, Instagram at The Law Father Tampa, and our Twitter is back up and running at The Law Father TPA. Now, uh, recently I had a, an opportunity to appear on the Ron and Ian show, and, and uh, so right when we get done here, I'm going to give you the opportunity to listen to that, cover topics such as the NFL draft and what the experience was like this year amid the COVID pandemic what things are like in the personal injury world uh, while this pandemic is going on and while everybody has not been driving, and the U.S. women's soccer team lawsuit. So take a listen, and uh, I'm going to get on out of here for today and let you listen to a repeat from the Ron and Ian show from my last appearance on it. Lawfather, out. We were um, discussing as well what happens when someone – is signed as a free agent. Mm-hmm. What does his sports agent tell him when you have nowhere to go? That's a good question. We have uh, the law father, William Frankie, on the line. William, how you doing, brother? Good. How you guys doing? Excellent, man. Hey, William, um, during this time, and you represent players as well as being you were in law enforcement, now you're an attorney, but you also represent players. What happens a guy signs with a team as a free agent and there's nowhere for him to go, nowhere for him to report to. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing with this year because we'd actually be right in the middle right now of rookie minicamp. We would have had one last weekend, and we would have one coming up this weekend where all these rookies who have signed would have reported to. But also, it's like a a big three-day tryout for a bunch of guys who didn't actually get drafted or signed uh, but have possibly the skill to play in the league. So, William, they would have normally had those three-day tryouts, so that has been omitted. So you're saying that there's a bunch of borderline players now that just really haven't been signed, correct? That's correct, and and I really think it hurts the small school guys more than anything else. And uh, these are guys who aren't always in the spotlight, and especially those small schools who had pro days later in March, because there actually were a handful of schools who had pro days, and so you had – what they call verifiable measurements of these guys. So height, weight, arm span, hand size, 40 time, uh, broad jump, vertical jump, all the things that happen in the combine also happen in these pro days. And for most of them, they didn't have those. So, William, do you have guys that you represent that are on the fence or that you've been talking to? And really, there's how can you give somebody advice during – of something that's never happened before in the history of sports. <laughs> it's uh, 
it's really very, very difficult. And I have a guy, and I love this kid. He's a great kid. He he plays at uh, he played at North Dakota State, and he was one of those kind of bubble guys. And in a regular year, I know he's at minimum going to make a rookie mini camp, and there's a chance that he gets signed as an undrafted free agent. And navigating the process with him, and I remember sitting there on draft day, and I'm watching my spreadsheet and watching the draft go, and I'm I'm hoping as I'm watching my computer, the more I look at my spreadsheet, the more maybe the phone will ring more, and maybe a team will call and offer him a contract. Although, it really turns out it doesn't matter how long you look at the screen, um, it doesn't really change what's there. But yeah, it's really hard. Um, I talked to him uh, yesterday. I've been talking to him two or three times a week since the draft, and. It's tough. It's, hey, stay in shape. But how do I stay in shape? I live in Minnesota. It's freezing here, and we don't have any gyms, and there's no place inside for me to go. Mm. So that is... it's tough. And, you know, to complicate matters, from some of the teams I've talked to, some of them took less undrafted free agents this year, and some took the same amount. So there's kind of less opportunities, it seems, all around this year. We're talking to William Frankie, the Law Father. You give him a call at 855-LAW-FATHER. Visit him at TampaLawFather.com. Now, William, as far as the COVID-19 and all the things that are going on, you see that our worlds are coming back to a little bit normalcy now. How did it affect just the world as far as accidents go? Because, I mean, we had, it seemed like, 90% less traffic. How did it affect as far as accidents go and, and your business? It was. Uh, it's interesting because as much as we had stay-at-home orders, we still saw some crashes happening, and um, but to a, a much lesser extent. And you know, I think there's. I don't think it's a straight-line correlation to one of the uh, numbers that I read was forty percent less traffic, but I think there was more than forty percent less crashes, right? So I, I think there may be something to that when you get a certain amount of congestion your crashes increase exponentially, right? And so there was a big drop-off, and the, the longer we got into this, the more I saw that all of a sudden there were a lot less crashes. There were a lot less people getting hurt, uh, which is a good thing in one sense, right? Less people getting hurt, less crashes, that's great. And uh, But in, as a personal injury attorney, that's a bad thing. Um, and, I, and honestly, with the insurance companies giving money back, I think they saw the writing on the wall also that, hey, their claims are going to go way down. I'll tell you what people got to get used to, and I noticed this myself. Um, Last week, maybe the week before, haul an ass because there's nobody on the road. (laughs) And now it's like, wait a minute, maybe (laughs) I got to be closer to the speed limit than I have been here lately. But there are cops everywhere. Oh, well, yeah, but they're busy. And I'm not saying I'm going to keep hauling ass. And I'm not saying I was hauling a lot of ass. I'm just saying that they're busy, you know, patrolling beaches sure. right now and making sure that there's social distancing going on. So I would think as we get back to normal, uh, let off the gas a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I also heard that a lot of the agencies weren't stopping as many people either. There was kind of yeah. a preferred message to kind of let people go. Yep. And now before we let you go, William, I know there's one thing that we haven't touched on a whole lot. You know, the uh, U.S. soccer team, the women's soccer team, I know they had a lawsuit going on. They were, they were trying to get equal pay with the men, and we haven't really got a chance to dig deep into that. What did you find out about that lawsuit that I believe they lost, and what was the reasoning for them not getting the pay? Yeah, and they, there's some aspects of that lawsuit going on. What They lost really the meat and potatoes of the lawsuit, and it, it's really – 
it's honestly very interesting because these we talk a lot about the NFL and the collective bargaining agreement, the CBA. Well, there's the U.S. Soccer Federation, and there's actually two different CBAs, one for the men's team and one for the women's team. And actually, the men are, are playing on an expired CBA. They haven't negotiated a new one yet. So it's they're playing under negotiated contracts, and what the women are trying to say is that, hey, we play the same game, and it's the same skill and same, same everything, same effort, mm-hmm. same conditions. And I know that the women's national team, or the, excuse me, the, the soccer federation, caught some heat for saying, well, no, it's, it's not equal skill, and it's not equal effort and responsibility. But, you know, sometimes when you look at it from a legal perspective, you have to make that kind of unpopular argument because one side has made the argument that it is equal. So you either agree and you take out your checkbook and you just pay them, or you go back and say, well, no, it's not equal, but hey, we have a negotiated collective bargaining agreement. And when you actually look at the numbers, they're two really separate things. And what's interesting is there's a large percentage of the women on the women's national team that make a salary as a result of them playing on that team. The men's team, and I'm really kind of boiling this down to to really uh, shorten the, the explanation, but the men's team is all pay to play. So men's team is really high risk. If you don't make the World Cup team, you you don't make the $68,000 that you get for making the team and then for wins that go on after that. So on the women's team, there's a bunch of women that make $100,000 salary, plus there's another percentage of those that are part of the National Women's Soccer League, which make another 60000 and that's Damn, guaranteed okay. money. Wow. So it's almost the difference of saying, do you work a job that you make a salary plus bonus, and maybe you make a little less salary, but if you perform well and you add yeah. your bonus into it, you can make more money? Or do you roll the dice and dice and have no salary, potential to make less, but potential to make a whole lot more. Uh, and 2018-2019 World Cup kind of highlighted this, right, where the men's team didn't make the World Cup, and they actually made a lot less than the women's team did in that time. So, um, you know, pros and cons to either, but they're negotiated agreements, and I think that's where the court said, hey, women's team, you don't have a leg to stand on it. It's not a men's and women's issue. It's a legal issue looking at these documents and and what's been put in place. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to revisit it. We could revisit it. Definitely, we're going to have William Frankie on every once in a while. 855-LAWFATHER or visit him at lawfather.com. Thank you, William, brother. We'll talk to you soon. This is a Life in the Fast Lane with Black Moses. Alan Lane, quick fix on Radio Influence. I was invited to be a part of this Facebook group. And, you know, I'm, I, you know I, I'm, a, I'm a rider. I've never been in a motorcycle club, you know, on the set. I've never been uh, part of a club that wore rags or a vest. Uh, I've never done that in, in, in for no reason other than the fact that I've always enjoyed and celebrated my independence as a rider. And I think my popularity in the community and in the industry, it pro- I enjoy, I had a certain level of ambassadorship, which I 
was an accepted member of the community, uh, you know, and I followed the rules. I, you know, I didn't overstep my boundaries or anything like that. I understood that I was a visitor, a guest in the community. And when you are a visitor or a guest anywhere, you can get kicked out promptly and swiftly. So <laughs> that did not, I did not want that to happen. So I minded my P's and Q's as it were. But during that time, four or five years ago, maybe six, seven, we're talking about when Myrtle Beach was popping. Um, and, and that was like the haven. That was the Mecca for black motorcyclists from all over the country, you know, and, and I think it's appropriate because it's May and, you know, Atlantic Beach Bike Week. Honestly, that's what I'm talking about. Like that doesn't exist anymore. And with the pandemic with what's going on, it's unlikely that we may ever experience that again. Bikers are rebellious by nature. So someone will find out a way to get people together, whether it be uh, in compliance with government things or not, you know, but there was a time where you really had that physical sense of community. Life in the Fast Lane with Black Moses, Alan Lane can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.